over grinding, climbing like clips I'm rhyming, mining like it's the 40. Alright, we're back with another episode of No GPS. This is the sixth episode to be exact and matter of fact. We're back again with another one. Today we'll be talking about the Star Wars show on Disney Plus called Andor. We're going to be talking about episodes six, seven, or actually seven, eight, and nine. So yeah, I'm back here again with my co-host Mez. What's up, Mez? How you doing? What's going on? How you living? I'm good, man. Bless, bless. All right, all right. I love to hear that. Okay, so um, <laughs> initial thoughts about Andor. We can go over themes. We can go over all kinds of different things that kind of stood out, right? The narrative is getting thick. Like you said, at the beginning of this this whole thing, this is the best thing on TV. And I would have to agree with you. Um, or it's the best thing out there, uh, not just on TV, but just on all different streaming platforms. They're getting into some real gray zones where you have to use your gray matter. Um, so, yeah, so we see episode seven, you know, Andor goes back home after the big score and he chooses not to join the, the rebellion, which, uh, of course, is a cause of consternation for the one Luthen, Luthen Rail. And we see that that comes with a whole bunch of issues. So, yeah, so he goes back to Ferex. And he wants to, you know, bring Ma along, you know, Marva, the, the lady who saved him from getting killed on his uh, home planet of Canari. So, yeah, like, so, like, what did you think about that? You know, we're introduced to a lot of flashbacks again. Um, I think we learned that the name Clem came from the man who was with Marva when uh, uh, the man who saves uh, Andor, uh, Cassian. Oh, yeah. uh, so his name is actually Clem, and we see the way that he uh, he comes to his demise, right? So we see that there's a a conflicting relationship with the Empire, of course, and it's you know just a, the dehumanizing way that they treat people. So he carries these names. So the names that they're using sometimes they're they're uh, they're hints at uh, this person's you know identity and, and the people that make them up. So yeah, so he goes back, uh, and then uh, of course you know he sees himself as a tourist. So we can get to this. Uh, I think that's a, an analogous to, you know, how people treat the world now, right? Or treat their place in the world now. We see ourselves as tourists and that kind of indigenous rooted identity is not necessarily there. And, and people who act like that, we, we think that they're backwards and behind. Um, but there's there's a real search for search for that, you know what I mean? And Andor is not actively searching for that indigenous identity anymore. He's in that binary, that Manichaean world. Uh, that we all exist in as far as like you're either left or right you're black or you're white on this issue um but this this show has showed a lot of gray zones and for many of us who are tourists where we are yet to um make our decision we are here there everywhere um like what do you think about that that's very reminiscent of the diasporic situation uh that we're in right where we're trying to like i was saying earlier um, or when, we're, when we were talking before the podcast, right? Um, a line from a movie made by a filmmaker, Haile Garima, um, a movie called Ashes to Embers, I believe. Ashes to Embers, yeah. Where a character in there talking to the main character, Ned Charles, uh, I think it's his grandma, is telling him that the main struggle for the broken tree branch is to find, uh, to get rooted and to, to grow roots in a, a new land that they've been uh, brought to or stolen and taken to. Uh, so we see that here, right, where everybody is is stripped of their indigeneity and people are trying to make sense of their place in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess that's what the rebellion is when when you don't have roots or you've been uprooted. A rebellion would be like to create one. 
create new routes to you know establish new ones um as opposed to like hopping from one point to the, to the next like he is he's kind of like a vagabond right he has these placeless uh rootless he always moves from person to person from hideout to hideout you know a score here a score there always living on the edge um one thing you see in these three episodes is you just learn we already see it until uh you know before this but he's very adaptable like mm. whatever situation he finds himself in and he always finds himself in some crazy situation he kind of adapts real quick he's like a survivor um i guess yeah that's what he had to be from the moment he was a kid mm-hmm. um yeah i guess that's uh, the tourist thing i didn't think of it when that happened and how quickly it happened First of all, the whole show's tone changed at that moment. I don't know if you noticed the music. The moment he leaves that room with the where, where he spends the night, yeah, and then goes out into the uh, strip, I guess. Mm-hmm. The music changes. Like the <laughs> everything about the show kind of reminded me of. Um, uh, do you remember that movie Brazil from like I think it was the seventies or eighties? Who's the director again? With uh, Terry Gilliam, it's kind of like this weird steampunk um, uh, kind of oddity. You know, it's it's about bureaucracy, but in a kind of alternative world. And um, it's a bit, you know, the, like the the way the music was being played, and all these different people were on the beach. Some were smoking and lounging, and some stuff was happening. And my guy was just walking down the road, and then gets picked up by an MP and then I mean I don't know um, this is the thing I've only watched Rogue One once and it was a while ago and on the online there have been a lot of people been wondering when he runs into K2SO the droid from yeah, Rogue see One it. yeah and so in the middle of this weird kind of <laughs> side swipe of a like a tonal shift you see K2SO come up and you're like oh, and I, I was like oh there he is okay so this is how they meet and then, and then it's not K Twisto. It's just a droid. You know, it's like, I guess it's the uh, the type of droid that K Twisto is. Right. And he gets picked up. Uh, and that took me to younger days in Eritrea. You know, a certain kind of state where the the repression is a little bit. You know, the space between freedom of movement and and the next uh, stop is kind of you know very narrow. And how right. like on a, on a whim you could just be picked up and thrown down all the way down to as, as far down as you can because uh, a recent law had changed just because. <laughs> right, right. I remember uh, an old uh, colleague once said in Eritrea, um, the law in Eritrea is written in pencil. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> tomorrow might change. And I remember that happened a lot of times because <laughs> you would leave your house just to buy some bread and next thing you know, you find yourself in a lineup on the sidewalk because because that morning or the night before something you know some announcements some issue some some something was called out to all the mps and all of a sudden you find yourself round out and then spend the next 24 hours trying to contact your parents to come to come get you out or something so that, that that's how i saw that uh because you know they really they really showed you how the bureaucracy of it is flimsy the guy just told them to you know come to the side and uh Droid p- picked him up, and next thing you know, it was a quick trial. 
uh, take it up with the emperor, as the, the judge said. And before you know it, yeah. you're on you're in Abeto. You're like in a raft somewhere in the middle of the ocean. Right, right, right. It, that was like that's head spinning, right? It's a, it's a being in it a is. state of vertigo, right? Where uh, the things that are happening to you are are happening at such like a breakneck speed, and you can never really plan. Uh, you can make your plans, right? And and it's kind of like you know that famous saying, you know, uh, man plans and God laughs, or or what have you. So you're making your plans, but they never really fit with the on the ground reality that's always changing because the security state is always reacting to um, things that are happening within it and without it. So when we see, it's weird because it's it's a bit of instant karma or the feeling of an effect of a cause that Andor was was like a serious contributor to, right? Um, because we see what happened in Aldani, the emperor and uh, the Senate loyalists in there, they they come up with a new law, right? The whole resentencing act. Um, so Luthen is understanding what the the empire is gonna do, and there's repercussions to that. But before we get to that, um, like we see that, okay. Andor is getting picked up. All kinds of people are getting picked up, and but they're getting picked up to not just be put in jail and stockpiled or sent to ghettos and Bantu stands and outer rim planets. They're they're getting sent to jail to work to be a part of the military industrial complex, right? Like they're in there in that jail yeah. um, that Andor eventually goes to, making making instruments of war. Uh, so before he knows it, he's turned on the other side of it. But there's no agency. There's no choice in it. He's you're picked up. And this is what happens to a tourist who doesn't know the lay of the land and thinks that there's another place I can go to that's going to be free of the issues that I was dealing with, say, on Barracks or Aldani or where have you. The irony is he's the one who caused the law to change with what happened in Aldani. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. It's like it's just it's just pure irony. Um, and then we see Luthen, who's expecting this to happen. And, you know, when he's talking to Mon Mothma in, you know, that antique shop, she's, she's obviously taken off guard. She didn't expect this to happen. She's like, yo, were you behind this? And he basically kind of slyly says, like, yeah, like, what do you think? Like, we're not just building a network. Like, we got to use that network for something. You know, and I think he says something to the effect of, you know, we, you make a weapon to use it. <laughs> so he finally used it. And so he understood that our, obviously we need this bankroll. Um, it's getting harder and harder for Mon Mothma to get access to her, her family's fortune to fund this. And he probably doesn't want her to have all that kind of power anyway. So he's trying to find a score and it works. They get the, the, 80, the 80 million credits or, or what have you. But he also knows that, um, and she says this too, right? This is the humanitarian thing. And this is where the idealism of of or the our idealistic delusion of what revolutions are um you know the whole muddy ground with all the manure you know filling all the holes you know is revealed right he's like yeah i know people will suffer but that will be the thing the clarion call for people to come and join this revolution yeah do you know what i mean yeah. like it's like oh wow that's but that's that's just like to go back to what you said earlier like this being the best show on tv for me mm-hmm is um it's star wars doing it that matters if this was just any other show there's been there's a lot of you know dramas docudramas uh, neorealist takes from you know the 50s and 60s up till now that tackle revolution rebellion you know uh, 
anti-colonial stuff. But the fact that Star Wars is doing this uh, in tw- and finally after whatever forty something years, and it's tackling these very issues, like the the Lucian Mon Mothma conversation, that is the um, NAACP Black Panther conversation from the sixties. Um, what what you first think is just two sides who don't agree and have two different ways of looking at things. If you look deeper into some of these books that cover the uh, the history, is that there was actually a lot of cooperation. Um, what the people who were talking about an armed and violent resistance um, knew is that they that they need the NAACP. They need the marches. They need the negotiators. They need the peaceful boycotts um, in order for them to do what they do and what those the people within the NAACP understood is you need us in order you know we need you to in order for us to actually even be heard on the on the in the highest stages of you know state and and uh, and the government so there's like this mutual uh, codependency and um, right. that kind of always went together like non-violence violence wasn't actually opposed to each other they kind of needed each other um if nobody's listening to you we will you know throw down over here and guess what tomorrow they'll listen to you and Mm -hmm. if once they listen to you you know we can we can you know can move in in lockstep together and what lucian is saying is 100 true man it's uh this is even in uh, frank wilderson's book in what was it called again um Incognito. Red, red, white. No, incognito because this is about South African, um, you know, resistance about how, just in the, in the, in the moment of uh, tactics and strategy, when when the violence of the state kind of has done its work and now everything is in motion, you know, the empire is kind of just moving. It's the new norm. For it yeah. to not to be not to be the new norm, this actual violence has to come to the fore again, right? It has to be brought out. Like its face, its true mm-hmm. face has to be shown to everyone as much as possible. And the way to do that is through violence. So you attack them, you make them, you know, turn the screws on repression. The people can't uh, can't take it anymore. So you get more rebels joining your rebellion every day from that point on, and it becomes like this constant, you know, violent, uh, you know, violent response to to a violent action, and then. And then another response, and then back and forth, and before you have, and then you, you know, these are like the, like you said, the clearing call, like these, the, the seeds for, for a revolution to start. And Mon Mothma, I think she pl- kind of ro- plays the role of the, the NAACP in this, because, right. and, and what was <laughs> more brilliant, I, I, they really thought of everything, and there's so many cast members here, it's crazy. She's the sister of Sinta, no, not Sinta, uh, Vel, right? Vel, yeah. Uh, They're calling her her cousin, but I think it's her sister, right? Yeah. I think she's Mon 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 Mothma's uh, sister. Yeah, and she's the little girl's aunt. Because the daughter refers to her as aunt. Yeah. And the first clue was in what she said uh, to Sinta. What did Sinta say to her? You love me because I need to be the mirror for what you want to be. What was the line that she says to her? Do you remember it? You love me because I'm I'm the mirror for what you like what you need to do i think is what she said it was and i was like at that moment i understood everything why vel was the one who was first of all she was she's the leader of that little ragtag group that that cell yeah yeah and it makes sense now why she was the leader there lucian put her there even though behind mm-hmm. mon mothma's back so he knows her through mon mothma right 
Second of all, if you remember during the mission, she was shaking. She was sweating it out. Like, she didn't know whether she could go through with it. And it was Cinta who was, you know, just going through with everything. She was, like, the most accomplished one out of them all, remember? She was, she was right, kind of right. just uh, doing her thing. And that would make sense because she's the privileged girl. She's the girl yeah, who comes yeah, from. But she got dressed up and I was like, oh, snap. Like, you, you're seeing the earrings. You're seeing all of that. As the kids would say, drip. And you're like, oh. Yeah, she's the college. Wow, like, she's the college educated chick, you know, who went to to the other side. You know, all started with uh, probably um, some kind of morality thing when she was a teenager. And then she moved out. And uh, yeah. the girl, her girlfriend had her entire family murdered by the Empire. She has a completely different route into this. You know, right, they were right. made by different. Uh, it's, I think uh, Hawkeye did this also as well with Kate Bishop and Echo, uh, Maya Lopez. Right. Like they, they both kind of end up on either side of a kind of um, you know a, a defense of violence, call it whatever. Um, so that's that's that was that was interesting to me, and um, they are showing you the class divisions, right, and how the rebellion, the kind of the, the net of rebellion, casts over. Two completely different types of uh, classes, like uh, the, the ones in the, the rural areas, the, the working class, the pros, and then also the, the higher ups, you know, the ones from, who come from rich rich families, whose only way into this can be idealism. They can only be idealistic and humanitarian, and you know, talk about aid and talk about um, imperial overreach, you know, that kind of stuff. They're they're constantly they can only ever be politicians and senators, and uh, speech makers and things like that right and uh what luther is trying to do is yank the whole thing forward where so that right. by the point we meet mon mothma in star wars the new hope i think that's when we first see her is it i think she's um yeah her and um what's the homie's name the guy who adopted uh uh um, oh the one who dies in uh by the death star um yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah. He's the senator too, Did right? he die? No, I don't think he, uh, Jimmy Smiths, man. <laughs> What's his name? I don't think he died. Did he die? You know the guy who uh, who's played by Jimmy Smiths, um, Organa. You know the guys who raised um, Princess yeah, Leia. Yeah, he does die in the, the does he die? The Death Star attack. Mm, oh, so he on, dies uh, on that, that on Alderaan. Oh shit, man. Yeah. I need to rewatch the ones. <laughs> I have so much, so many movie parts, man. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't know. I guess in a lot of the Star Wars sp- stuff I've been watching, he's been alive. So, um, yeah, damn, man. Rest in peace, yeah. Jimmy. Um, I know. We, we love him. <laughs> but, yeah, so it makes sense. So by the time we meet her and him and, you know, those once the rebellion gets going, it's... Yeah. Uh, well, I guess we meet him before that, obviously. But I just think of him because they're in the same kind of class position. But now she's actually fully helping out with the... Uh, at that point, she she becomes a fully full, full member, I guess, of the, uh, the rebellion. And she's for the tactics that they're using you know right 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 right. Yeah, it's so interesting that um like in the beginning right of the rebellion there's a certain class of person with a certain level of education or certain access to a certain type of experience that we might call privilege that is, is called forth through the idealism and the principles being espoused by um you know a resistance force but for it to get taken into the next stratosphere you need a vanguard you need you need an actual front people are going to go out there and do the dirty work and be as fanon would say the valiant workers and fanon identified you know the valiant workers as being 
people who are part of the lumpen proletariat, right? And not just part of the lumpen proletariat, not just, uh, you know, dock workers or whatever. We're talking about, you know, what he called those hooligans, pimps, prostitutes, thieves. These are the people who are going to fill up the ranks. And that's what we see in, in, these, in these last three episodes is that the people who are involved with the rebellion are not squeaky clean people. And they're the ones that you're going to have to bring forth in for it to work. You can't moralize to the point of exclusion. There has to be an inclusive process um, towards building uh, a different type of future. I give this example. This is part of the history that a lot of, not a lot of people would know about, you know, how revolutions are funded and, and the kind of people that you need. Uh, and the people that you need are always the people when you get your liberation, the people you step on, right? So say in, in Eritrea, right, you had the, the phenomena of the, the madama, what they would call the indigenous prostitute used by the, the colonial force at the time, right? To Not only for, you know, conjugal needs, but, you know, to clean up the homes and do all of that kind of stuff. But these women were widely seen as, uh, you know, prostitutes of, you know, elite officers of the Italian uh you know, colonial army and all of that kind of stuff. And so they were looked down upon. And a lot of these women who were forced into these kinds of um, livelihoods, um, their husbands were either killed in war or imprisoned. So they had to find a way to support their families. And they had to do this. They had to go about things in, in this manner. Um, but because of that, they were looked down upon. But here's the rub, right? When you look at uh, where a lot of the, the first meetings, when people were thinking about not just having a, a union with Ethiopia after the Italians are taken out of Eritrea because of their loss in World War II and the resistance uh, on Eritrea and Ethiopia to them and then the, the Brits are there. During that whole time, you have these women who took the funds and the money that they earned, right, and the properties that they had. They flipped it. They had bars. They had restaurants. They had taverns. These places that these women owned were the places where those revolutionary conversations were happening. Should we form a union with Ethiopia? Should we have our own, you know, the people who are unionists were there, people who were like pro-national, uh, Eritrean national politics, or uh, national sovereign identity were there. And so these were the people who were funding the revolution in the beginning. And we forget. You know what I mean? And it's it's we have to unveil that. Because it doesn't make things look so pretty, right? But at the end of the day, what it shows you is that everybody's involved. But especially what we would consider like, what people would think of just like gutter, right? But they're your best chance at winning. And they're a part of it. And they're part of the process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, the, it's like the arm stretches from, from that corner of the population all the way to the Mahmoud side of it. And, and then in the middle, you have all these different stations. You have... Vel, you have on one, on, on closer to the Mon Mothma side, you have Sinta closer to the side you're describing and, um, and people find their way into it differently. It, I mean, I always have to say though, we're talking about history here, probably not going to yeah. repeat itself. The fact that a Disney Plus show can, uh, <laughs> can give you this is, uh, is I always liken it to the moment Fanon could be easily bought at, on a high street bookstore. <laughs> you know? Where it's just like a couple of decades before, it was kind of like, uh, no, I can't be seen with that, or might end up in uh, in in uh, Narkina, Narkina Five, which is the name of the prison that they ended up in. But yeah, you're um, I'm with that. Um, also, you need people like, and this is the this is kind of like goes to the. We've spoken about this before. Um, I'm always interested in the 
particular kind of a masculinity of that era mm-hmm. that made for uh, for this particular position within the revolution. And that by that I mean the Lutans, the Saw Guerreras, and the uh, who's the man they named at that point? Was it uh, was his name Anto Krieger? Anto Krieger. I don't yeah. think we met him yet. Well, we've only watched till episode nine, so. When Luthen goes to see Star Guerrera, they mention Anto Krieger. And they all talk about each other as if they have their own rebel cells going on. They have their own styles, their own strategies. They know about each other. They even brag about Aldani. Like, did you do it? No, it was you. No, it was me. Like, you know, it's kind of like, who cares, right? It's almost, it's like, it's like two grown men who are fight, who are trying to jumpstart the biggest revolution of all time. Talk about stuff as if... They're getting ready to play a poker game or something. So that's what I'm, and that's kind of what I uh, that what I would also point to is like you also need men like that. And um, again, in Fanon, you also Fanon kind of forces you to look at the psychology of these men, what it takes to be these men, and how crucial it is to get rid of these men after the war is won. Oh wow think about chris honey right well right. no 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 not in that sense he means in the mandela's mandela sense oh. in the in the wilderson sense that mandela should come out of prison but then die of natural causes right right or right, even right. chris honey sense that mm-hmm. th- those who fought for independence can't then lead in independence they need to make way for something right. else and and you can see it here sagarera is kind of like the most obvious you know um, example of why you know, see, it's kind of obvious, right? You, you do not want. Yeah. I don't think Saw Guerrero was made for peaceful times, and you, no. you see more of his character obviously in the in the Clone Wars show and the and the Rebel show, and um, mm-hmm. that's just that's just too much trauma. And yeah. by Rogue One, you see what happens to him, right? Like uh, where that ends up with him. I'm interested in what happens, you know, to Luthen, and I also want to know what makes yeah. him tick. He's kind of like the only person who's uh, who's not shown his. Uh... Yeah, we don't know his past, and he doesn't. He doesn't do flashbacks. He's forward and in the moment, but there's that conversation he had with Saw Guerrero, which kind of revealed. You know, he says he says he's a coward or something to that effect. Um, so he shows a vulnerability that he hadn't shown before, which I thought was I thought was very very very. Uh, yeah, he just really really wants this. You know, I guess he's the truest yeah. in its truest form. That's what. It's uh, it's kind of kind of rebellion incarnate. He really wants it. The, the other I, person I really was taken to was um, Marva, who in her old yeah. age decides to not follow her son, and falls in love with this new flower, which is like the the rebellion. Like the fact that, like this reminded me. This really reminded me of Eritrea in the seventies and eighties when, you know, the um, EPLF was starting to make strides, and they would hear news about such and such city fell or they attacked this base and they made ground here and all of a sudden like like the that story that she said that she told um andor about was it i don't know if she was speaking to big star to andor at that point but when she heard about aldani she she wore her best coat and walked down the street <laughs> that, that's, that hit me man that hit me in the chest that's something my grandmother would have done or or uh, my mother would have done because we, we, you know, our, the street we lived in was right next to the La Limba sack factory. So it was like an important yeah. spot. Uh, it was always uh, um, Amhara, like Derg soldiers there and 
people coming in and out. I think even Mangusto came in there once to open up the factory or something. And everybody came out of the house just to have a glimpse of, uh, you know, the man himself. So, right. So they would always be harassed. Like, you know, young women would be harassed by the soldiers. They were always kind of present. Just in the same way they were in, in um, is it Ferrix, is it called? Yeah, Ferrix, right? So there's like yeah. this close quarters life uh, you know life between workers you know citizens and so i guess in this case stormtroopers or um corporate guards and stuff like that so when you hear news from afar you just wanna you want to show them you want to show your happiness right but you can't show your happiness you can't show your that you're fighting with the rebellion so that was that was really dope right. um so th- yeah there's this weird feverish kind of love for what could possibly be for that for what you were saying for the maybe the the rootedness to create roots new roots yeah out of um out of being uprooted so yeah man it's uh it's dope you want to move on to the prison industrial complex yeah the prison industrial complex yeah like it's um yeah we, we see on uh was it called nirkana 5 right it's a it's a ship out in, in the sea and they have all of these really perfected governance uh, a governance model of how they deal with the inmates, right? Like even like the way that they take a shower is like they're objects. They've been thingified. People are in there and they are working to the death, like on some James Brown shit. Do it to the death. You know what I'm saying? I'm in a cold sweat. Like it's crazy. Like we we see it in um in the figure of you, uh, Olaf. I think it's Olaf. The guy who, the, the older gentleman who, who, of course, dies of a stroke, he works and works and works to the death. And then what we do find out in the prison is that, or eventually, um, and this is when uh, the character Kino, um, I forgot this actor's name, but of course, he's in the first Black Panther movie um, uh, playing uh, Klaus. Uh, oh, uh Claw. Claw, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Claw. Claw. Uh, maybe that another real, real world uh, villain. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, like, so, so this guy, he's asking him, hey, like, how many guards are on each floor, right? Like, from the beginning, Andor is thinking about an escape. And this guy's like, hey, I only have so and so amount of days that I'm going to be here and I'm going to leave. So, yo, you, you stick to the script. I'm going to stick to the script and I'm going to be a hard pushing basically like general in here right and then finally you know that moment comes yeah in episode nine um where Ulef dies the medic comes in and they basically grill the medic to say yo what happened on that other level i think it was level two we heard that everybody got killed and i guess with the whole re- new resentencing um you know with that new policy that came down from the, em- the, the emperor um that hey you're gonna work work until you become too problematic, too troublesome, and we're just going to kill you all. And so he basically reveals to them, like, yeah, that's what happened. And then Kino's like, hey, uh, <laughs> when Andor finally asks him again when they're going back to their cells, he says, uh, Yo, how many how many, how many, many guards are on, the, on each floor? And I think he says something to the effect of, like, never more than 12. Right? So now, like, obviously going into episode 10, they're thinking about a strategy of getting out. As far as, like... How the, the prison industrial complex is, is similar to or analogous to the prison industrial complex that we have now, you know, yeah, you can find a lot of similarities. You can find, a, you know, just the governing tactics and techniques used to keep people in a captured uh, mode, right? You have to put hope there. You have to do all kinds of things. But at the end, we've seen that the state was really moving draconian to the point to where 
you're a worker until you're dead, right? They're acting like a feudal state. You know what I mean? They're exacting tributes on people. They're doing all of these different types of things, right? And and, and to people like Luthen, this is a grand gift because, oh, wow, now our ranks are really going to swell, right? Like, you know, <laughs> when we think about the past, right? Like we were talking about the Derg. That's like the time, like a lot of people, whether in my family or people I knew that ended up going to the field, you know, during the Haile Selassie era, there was like, you know, people were going, people were going, but, you know, they hang a person here or there, you know, do an atrocity here or there, but it wasn't nothing like the Derg, you know, the Derg, these are military officers, they only, there's, there's no, there's no care to stick with them, it's only stick. And so with those kinds of like strongman tactics of the, the Derg, you know, the atrocities that they were committing, just hanging, just it, mass hangings. It, it was, was just one person. It was relative too. And during the Haile Selassie days, the ranks were mainly filled by lowlander Muslims who had their villages, you know, ransacked and burned and a lot of public hangings. So it made sense right, right, that right. they, a lot of the rebellion was, you know, jump-started by them. And like you say, once the dirt came in, it included other parts of the country. So more people joined in from other parts of the country. So that's what, you know, at the end, by the 80s, you have this complete, you know, diverse, diverse kind of force, force within the uh, rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's it, uh, just these tactics on the field, you know what I mean? How they're utilized. You have people on the ground, like theoreticians, people who are strategists thinking about like, if if these guys do this and, and, and it could be a totally just you know heartless violent thing but they're thinking okay if they push this envelope too far then we'll get the support that we can get to really put up a front against them right and then like yeah in the beginning you know ethiopia has a we can say a, a state that's been around for a long time as abyssinia um or at least an imaginary people there's always been this this sense of like, and I think that that's why they were targeting the lowlands. It's always the fear that Eritrea will, will become an, a, a state in the Arab League um, and will have this powerful, you know, uh, foe to the north of us that is, you know. Yeah, it's too close. Um, too close for comfort, man. Can't have Mohammedans out there. <laughs> exactly. And that's why the Americans were like, you know what? Yeah, take this. You know, you can federate it and you can put it as a part of your state you know what i mean as a you know a buffer this is a a, a mostly christian country at least they, they they presented themselves to be that way and so they targeted people in in that fashion and they were targeting people from a religious from a particular religious background and with the derg they just they're hitting up everybody these guys are atheists right they, they don't care about none of that kind of stuff yeah. they hate tradition if they see tradition they are pulling it out of the ground even like more forcefully than colonizers coming from outside of the continent right yeah. like it's, it's just maniacal drive to like to just kill it and burn it on both sides on the rebel side and on the imperial side and Luthen would tell you that's their mistake and that's our that's our big boost that's our big moment Right, right. Which is, which play is, upon that. Which is only, which is impossible to to think post ninety whatever post Berlin Wall because the entire world falls into a false kind of uh, partnership between democracy and the free market, where uh, the only kind of violence that is accepted is state violence. This it's in the Wilderson book again. If you have a problem with re revolutionary violence, it's only because deep down you prefer the state violence. It's not that you're a pacifist. You're just okay with 
with the kind of violence that it takes to maintain the repressive state that it is. And in a highly right. socially stratified capitalist society, you you can be comfortable. You know, you it might not touch you, um, but you kind of made your choice. And Luthen, the Luthens of the world, are trying to bring bring it out, make it visible. So it touches everybody. Yeah, so it touches everybody. And um, there are there are people who will say that the last eight years or so have shown, you know, in Europe and and America have shown that things are moving towards that again it's because we can see a lot more happening a lot of the atrocities in your face now some you know obviously a lot of the argument is also well there's surveillance everywhere everybody's got a phone so that's the reason people can see it but also so some of these governments are just making desperate moves you know making decisions that they you would have never seen coming beforehand because things are kind of moving now things are vibrating in a much quicker you know state so you know someone like trump coming uh into presidency uh getting the presidency or some of the far-right movements on in, in europe getting getting more and more central power the uk even the eu um and also leaving the um the agreement what was it the dublin or the geneva convention for the asylum seekers like that kind of stuff yeah. is all just a reaction to everything being brought into the daylight so things are being more and more repressive and which brings out even more and more people out into the street so there's that kind of point of view because of, of how these things kind of move in 40 year periods more or less from uh, things relaxing into a kind of repressive violence that's not day to day that's not obvious to you know a little bit more chaos which can always jumpstart another kind of I don't know you know several decades long um, yeah resistance real resistance stuff like that yeah but um what i was gonna say is another again um about narkina 5 about the prison industrial complex and the the work you talk about it's futile because in it, it's the prison system that shows capitalism's ass you know it's like capitalism isn't different from feudalism and the proof is in in the prison system the prison system shows that there really is no much uh, difference between the feudal state prior to capitalism and capitalism capitalism just stratifies society to the point where you can you can um, focus on things happening outside the prison walls but within the prison wall everything is kind of moving the way it did before like you said work till you die work till you drop and um by striking deals with other states like china who do the same thing to their populations and other smaller countries in that part of the world yeah. where production is uh key and um again we've seen many prison movies that do this we know every, we know this stuff but for star wars to do it you know you can't just keep calling something an empire and showing me a old man in a, in a cloak you know and calling it empire right. like you know, you know that meme about rise of skywalker uh somehow palpatine yeah. returned what do you mean somehow <laughs> what do you mean somehow yeah. palpatine returned and not only did he return he returned with like a million star destroyers in the sky like where all this come from who made this stuff how does an empire have that much access to that much resources that, mu that much technology how does the day-to-day -day material existence of an empire come to be well they just gave you three episodes of that you know by by a a absolutely um you know like it's it's primitive accumulation like an, an always re renewable yeah. sort resource that and that is uh human labor 
right. that is cheap, that can be replaced easily, and that you can. I was thinking about this actually earlier. You know how an individual working on something can focus yeah. on the thing that he or she is working on, and get a lot of stuff done without any help, because a second or third person would just interrupt the flow of what mm. they're working on. The capitalist's dream is to increase that workload, but to have, say, a thousand people work with the same focus as one person, as that one person. That's kind of like the dream. Right. That's the fantasy that they want. What if we had a thousand people work on the same thing, in the same way that one person would, you know, with the same kind of focus that one person would, to get a lot more, you know, ground covered in, in terms of uh, whatever it is the task at hand. But then you would yeah. the the result of that would be you would you know get that much more um, what do you call it results right you'd have that much more to uh, to produce so the production skyrockets and capitalism is always that pains to think of ways to do that you know how to how to do it so there's a factory but then also there's something easier something simpler and it colludes with law and lawmaking and governance to create a prison system that you know they really show you especially episode. Eight and nine, I think. Nakina five, obviously, is the name of episode eight. And then at nine, and also Kino is an important middle manager, right? It's uh, sometime in the late 1800s they in, they literally invent management. Management right. is kind of invented on a plantation and in uh, certain factories because the owners had to create a new class that was a buffer class between themselves and the angry workers who had to be maintained. So you create right. a manager management class that gets paid more, moneyed more. It's still a waged class, but it's paid more to do that for you. They're not part of the unions, and so that's a condition of yeah. being yeah. a manager, right? Yep. Where I work, mm -hmm. I just I, I even kind of found the line. So there's a, a a manager. Well, there's you know there's supervisors, and then there's managers, and then there's area managers. And I always wondered where mm -hmm. the line is. You know where who who can actually strike you know who can be part of industrial action and the line stops at area manager the area manager will try to coax enough managers underneath him to to get enough staff to show up on the day of the strike mm -hmm. to keep the business moving and right. the managers underneath the area manager if they're unionized they'll just tell him to fuck off but if there's right. that one guy who has ambition to become an area manager, <laughs> he will try to figure out who who he can convince to come and who is unionized, who is not unionized. Usually, you keep that stuff secret, anyways, so mm -hmm. they can make phone calls. They call, you know, they call, they email to see, hey, uh, what are you doing on Friday? Are you coming in? Um, you know that kind of thing. And then they report back mm -hmm. to the area manager. And I was like. Okay, this is interesting. At a certain point, you are no longer your yourself. You know, you are theirs. You're a company person. And in right. Kino, you it's and even and in this situation where Kino can obviously see that he's just in with the rest of them. <laughs> you know, exactly. Ah, he was a manager, right, 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 right. He's yeah. the manager. He's the middle management. He's right. the overseer. You know, we know this from the overseer in the plantation. Um, so this is like. Yeah. the awakening of the manager right so like what happens in that situation yeah. with the at managers that moment, like, yeah yeah at That's that crazy. point when they hear what happened at the other level he realizes that and on top of Olaf's death and this idea you know we've seen this in so many prison movies right oh man he's got like 
he's got like 20 days left before he gets to go out on parole or something, or you know, on probation, right? Whatever it is, and then something tragic befalls the person, or in the case of um, Shawshank Redemption, the person has been in prison for so long they don't know how to uh, reintegrate. Yeah. So um, we've seen many versions of this, but for Star Wars to do it to give you a you know behind the curtains look at how Empire even happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, hey man. Maybe you know. I told you some of the actors. One of the I think it was Fiona Shaw, the the woman who plays Marva. Yeah. She thinks this movie is about Trump. Trump's America. So what? maybe like what I was saying earlier about you know the reason things are kind of you know just happening in broad daylight these days or being said in broad daylight. You know, right. maybe uh, maybe Fiona ain't that wrong, man. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, the, the lines are being drawn in the sand again, right? And it's a multipolar world and, you know... Yeah, for her, we? this is her revolution, right? Trump is the, is the big baddie and uh, some for other people, it's America, period. Other right. people, it's some, yeah. yeah for China. other people, it's the idea of, uh, yeah, just a repressive state, period. Eritrea now, or China. And yeah. um, and for Mon Mothma, it's, the, it's a certain kind of ideal that's not being upheld. And if only we did that, if all these other divisions wouldn't matter. You know, China, Eritrea, America, Trump, who cares? It's, uh, there's a certain way of, um, you know, going about things, you know, right. let's, let's get some money here. And she's getting, she's getting her hands dirty too, you know, with the, with the whole banker stuff. And she's working with the gangsters now. That's what I'm saying. It's getting great. <laughs> and Eritrea, that's the same thing, right? The money mm-hmm. had to come in somehow. So they had to sit with uh, a lot of Arab men. A lot of, a lot of Arab money came in, man. And what I was telling you earlier, money from women who were prostitutes, right? Yeah, the lower lower quarters. I think it's Balzac. I forgot the name of the French author, right? Who says it like behind every great fortune is a, is a great crime or something to that effect. That's very much much the case because you're talking about, as you were saying, primitive accumulation, right? What does that look like? How is that? And what's being instrumentalized in that, right? And we see, I think they say it in, in episode nine. I'm not sure. Episode eight, right? Um is it andor who says this right you said something to the effect of like um you know we're cheaper than droids and easier to replace that's why the empire likes to use us right as their workforce um so it's like it's even a a case against automation and like why human workers are actually the most ideal and the work is to not only make you a worker but to make you a consumer again right so if we were in a sense an economic formulation that was based on financialization which treats people as objects to be accumulated then now with the deglobalization of the world economy then you have the reinsertion of you got to be a worker again we have to create more markets to sell all of these products and services because we're overproducing and we don't know how to exist in a world where there's like zero growth because then you're headed really into the a gilded age or a feudal era right because they were they, that was a highly classed I mean, we're in a highly class structured world right now, but that was highly class. Obviously, there was no middle class. Um, So if you if you had money back then, it's because you inherited it. Right. There was no. So it's it's working towards this feverish pace to keep this dream going. But like like how much can I consume? How much can I make like this can't keep going on ad infinitum? And I think that that's why there is a certain there's there's lines that have to be drawn and there's people like Luthen. And I know a lot of people are making the, the connection between Supervisor Miro, Miro, 
uh, Deidre Miro and um, what's his name? The guy who's the bureaucrat at, at the at the at corporate, um, Cyril uh, Cyril uh, Karn. Oh, Cyril Karn, the guy who's uh, obsessed with her. Yeah, so the same. They're they're because they're both like, you know, just crazy ambitious and nothing can stop them. They're saying they're mirrors of each other. But I really think that Supervisor Miro and Luthen have more in connection because they say the exact same thing. They say she says, you know, there's there's no rules here. She says something to that effect of like you know systems either change or die right when she's talking to um well when um, she when she says that the entire table kind of gasps it's almost like she said she said too much she sounded like a rebel <laughs> she exactly she thinks like a rebel she thinks like luthan and it, that, that's what's so crazy so like you need these kind of people who say these lines are arbitrary we need to to create a unified field of information gathering so that we can stop these people and then we can come in with with uh, the mappers and put the borders down right you need these people who exist in these gray zones and this gray gray um you know the gray side of the force and they come in and and they do this kind of dirty work for us to then later on live uh, lives with our kinds of like our heads to the sky you know yeah by the way the gray side of the force that's what andor is it's the gray show star wars it's no longer uh, it's no longer the dark or the light side <laughs> yeah it's about the gray the gray but yeah uh, her she's um she's interesting I'm trying, uh, she was like the one I, I, I had to think about the most, but within post-industrial, I guess, a post-industrial Western context, she is the ambitious, I guess, again, middle management who who uh, was driven to, to get to the top. And in yeah. order to get there, she kind of leaves like a destructive path. Mm-hmm. Because, because in real life, I have no uh, analog for her. Like, I'm sure there are people like her. Because how else do you get up there? But, um, yeah, she does think like she's obsessed about how a rebellion, how a rebel would think. But then, so 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 is Cyril Karn. I'm just, right. think, I'm just thinking, how how are they different? Outside of him, obviously being presented as a type of masculine, uh, like a repressed masculine type, who's um, trying to free himself by by uh, proving himself to to the empire and right. um, to to power you know he wants to uh he desperately wants power's approval so he can release all this kind of repressed uh, you know masculinity that he feels is uh it's being repressed by the kind of life that he's leading to, to this point I, I i can see that i mean i he's he's obviously that and and his parallel is andor because he's also he also kind of suffers from the same you know waywardness for what right. kind of man he's supposed to be you know he's right. waking up with the with you know another woman like that he's just met i'm assuming yeah and, and then leaving on and go to the next thing so they're they're both kind of looking for something the thing is cyril Khan knows what he wants and 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 or doesn't know what he wants yeah i think that they kind of are in the same sandbox in my mind whereas what what Karn, what cyril Khan wants from what's her name miro miro or miro yeah. Yeah, yeah it's the agent is i think he's just trying to get uh, uh you know he's trying to hold her her coattails so he can whisk <laughs> away from the, the bottom you know what they say about the bottom parts of coruscant yeah they, where he lives you never mm-hmm. see the sun mm-hmm. like sunshine is a privilege of those who live in the upper echelons of society right so those very low kind of parts um he's trying to get out of that and uh Man, his yeah. mama is a piece of work, man. They, they, they really, 
they're really hammering this whole this bit home about a boy and uh and a mom and, and no father and uh you know a mom who always has to constantly call in favors through her context so and so he feels completely emasculated through her and but anyways i i moved it way too far away from what you were talking about no 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 i think that's an important points that you're making because he's in essence they probably made this character in the guise of you know somebody who would be characterized now as being an incel right um somebody who's involuntarily celibate but that's just a that's a sexual kind of like connotation ma- made with it but it's just somebody who's living a sheltered life and who's trying to prove themselves in the world but doesn't know really how to do it right and so i think he's even approaching the character of miro as an ex- she's an extension of the empire of the emperor and he's trying to prove himself to his father that he 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 has what it takes the thing is he doesn't have a mediating force to kind what, of what do you mean his father he's looking for a father figure right so yeah. it's like it's right because he he's missing one right in, exactly. in a mother son relationship whereas andor never knew them so there's there's a lack in one and there's a um, there's an absence in the other exactly and so for for Karn he's trying to get he's trying to make it happen he's trying to do that so he's if if we're thinking about the sun and in an old you know classic mythological terms the sun is like is like a beaming shining father right uh you know the king was always represented as the sun for you know his people and so he's reaching for it like that that felt like that that was a a great depiction cuz Coruscant looks beautiful beautiful and especially in the first couple of episodes of this this show but uh as we get into the episodes you see the more um unsavory parts of you know the gray zones well the lower parts the actual concrete the streets yeah they never see any sun yeah. with that kind of brutalist architecture and it's just ugly in front of you and it's it's meant to kind of stop you in your tracks and stop your imagination but this guy's imagination's not stopping he's not going to be a pencil pusher he's not going to be a bureaucrat like his mom and him want him to be just a good boy he is trying to get there he doesn't know how to that's why i feel like he because he doesn't have a mediating force to kind of taper that violence in him he's either going to do something like really really crazy or he's going to become a rebel or he's i don't know what's going to happen but it's going to be drastic and it's it's he's his force yeah. and his presence is going to be felt like it's going to be felt he's a ticking he's a ticking time bomb i mean in the, the incel thing the the keyword is involuntary more than the celibate yeah cuz it's it's post industrial excess unskilled labor these people are leftover males they're not even leftover men who now feel impotent mm-hmm. you know in every walk of life so all that excess energy gets sexualized so it gets talked about through sexuality he's a ticking time bomb and that's why they are ticking time bombs when they act out they act out in uh you know in a violence that's beyond just the you know the sexual type they out here like uh causing havoc as they did in your country or at least there was one person <laughs> Like historically, I think I'm getting this right. I might not be getting it right, but obviously, I was talking about the Gilded Age, the feudal era. There's only certain type of growth, certain type of men have access to women because they have a certain amount of wealth that would get you access to marriage or just that kind of affiliation. And so, I think yeah, I'm forgetting the name of the pope, but one of the one of the popes, he had to outlaw. like polygamy obviously you know in a good book it's 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 not something that's recommended but they had to make this law and policy 
to outlaw um to make a make it a crime you know the act of polygamy because what they were noticing and what they were getting was you know with a lot of men who are not married don't have any kind of prospects yo they get up to some pretty dangerous stuff so when the you know the the kind of um, the perverse logic and the wisdom of the church they were like we have to enforce monogamy as a way of curtailing the kind of unsanctioned violence that's happening all over the empire you know what I mean? And so the same thing is happening now where you just have all of these men who don't have the blue collar kind of jobs that they used to have. The economy is different. There's a specialized form of managerial work that only can admit a certain amount of people. Do you know what I mean? And so. Well, yeah, they're, they're coming face to face with capitalism. It's, uh, you know, there's always going to be left out, left out people. And what do they do? And, and they realize their relationship to other men is predicated on this. So uh, he has it, I don't. What do I do? Uh, oh, I take it out on the one that's not a man. They're scapegoating, right? They're not looking at actual father figures saying, yo, there's something wrong with these cats right here. There's not something wrong with my neighbor who came to this country as a refugee or to the woman up the street who has, you know, uh, $800,000 uh, condo. Uh, they, no, man, it's, it's not them. I'm sorry, Mr. Mr. Man out there in the manosphere. It's, it's, it's not these women uh, who are emasculating you and making you feel a certain way. You need to take up the real issue with your father, right? And and that's symbolic. But anyway, sorry. By the way, sorry to uh to to, to Matthew for who has to edit this because this is the last bit I'm gonna say is um it that's why they cast uh Miro as a woman. So he the tick he's a ticking time bomb. He's trying to catch you know get a hold of her coattails and press her so that once he gets his foot in, I think there is going to be a clash between her ambition within the worker context, yeah. with the context of capital and imperial capitalism and her femininity and then his kind of repressed masculinity in search of a father figure, father, yeah. father figure mediator that, um, that will kind of clash with her femininity and it's going to be uh, man i uh, kudos to tony gilroy man tony gilroy and uh, i think his name's toby haynes we'll leave you with this bit at the end like just to end this thing off and uh just to end this thing but like think about it the supervisor mural is she not the only super woman supervisor there it's all men right um, and she's the only one who can see what's actually happening. There's like a sea of incompetency that's happening. And, you know, we're just we're just laying out the, the structure of like where we see the socioeconomic role of, of certain parties in society are. This is not like a judgment on anybody who is getting named an incel. You know what I mean? That's a derogatory term. I, I would never go around call people that or. But that's what I mean. It's, I think it's, a, it's a, like everything on online. It's, yes. It's a reduction. Of something bigger into something that's more mm -hmm. salacious you know right, let's talk about talk about the sex stuff instead of these other things but yeah you're right she's the only woman and they show you a lot of scenes of how she has to make up for other incompetent colleagues yeah. or, or at least you know yeah. jump over hoops and obstacles just to get to this point where she is now so there's a there's a lot of it bro like i say man Capitalism is social stratification par excellence. Yeah. Like there's so many strata, and this show has given you so many characters. Look right, how right. many people we mentioned today. 
just like how many people we mentioned today because they all fall into each stratum because they represent that particular right. stratum within the whole social uh system yeah and you get to tell a story that way over 12 episodes and uh this is soon coming to an end but looking forward for the final for for this season episode of no gps Hey, we do it around here. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So yeah, that's the end of this episode. We're getting to it, and we're getting to it by getting through it. But um, yeah, man, I really enjoyed this conversation, Mez. Likewise. Yeah, we're gonna hit him with the Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, uh, podcast in uh, hopefully next couple of. Well, I'm gonna try and watch it again on Friday or Saturday, and then we can we can go for it. I can do it on Sunday. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Sounds good to me. Um, peace, love, and harmony to all of you out there listening. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we are out. Peace out. I'm Laurent Hill with the wheel, but the kill like Bill, but they more like Cosby than they like OJ. I roll with the role, I roll with the soul, like Rick and the Dig. They straight to the wig. I'm Prince with the lived. I'm pocket the gig. I'm Mike and the Wiz. They pop the Chris. I'm Jake and the Sick. I'm loaded. <laughs> The dice I roll it, like Jordan can't control it. Janet Jackson free zoning, Bolter like Leah Cohen. Uh, bap bap and I hit a bit of rhythm of the kick, hit a bit of rhythm of the fist, hit a bit of rhythm of the Bruce Lee, who me move like a Fuji, duck and a Uzi, glow up, blow up like Gucci, super side for the cause like QB. You win a game for the fame, what a shame for the fame like David Bowie. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, ah, yeah, yeah, ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I be the man, y'all be the rant, stalking the fan on YouTube, damn, hopping the lamb with the top of my head with the prince and Michael Jackson bad, what Wesley had, done new jack. I'm holding back my soul on that. People got some fake that try to keep me down. But the sister where you tell me something. Yeah, they probably when I try to see me drown. But the sister where you tell me something. People got some fake that try to keep me down. But the sister where you tell me something. Yeah, they probably when I try to see me drown. See me drown. See me drown. Who that there but a couple of friendly beavers, a couple of batteries, with me Houston with the reaper, young girl, look yo with the heat, I left that chillin' with the